does it strike you as strange that we are relational creatures by virtue of our evolution, our genetics, our sensory systems are extremely attuned to other human beings? You may have noticed. You know, you may want to pull away. They're so sensitive. Or you may really want to go out and get to meet some sensory input. Yet, as inherently social as we are, we meditate alone and in silence. And even when we're meditating next to other people, it's assumed that we're remaining uh, as units, separate units. You know what I'm saying? It makes a lot of sense from this perspective. And this is what the Buddha taught time and again. If you're into what the Buddha taught, I don't know. But, you know, go to those roots of trees. Go to those empty huts and meditate. We have to realize that this was in a context where when they left the empty huts, they came back to a community that was a community dedicated entirely to awakening, to relinquishment. And yet, we have no equivalent lifestyle, we have no equivalent community, we have no um, active, dynamic support from each other for awakening. That doesn't mean we can't come on a Sunday uh, evening, let's say, and be with each other and feel good about that support. But when you go back to your lives of work and your families and so on, uh, your meditation has actually been entirely silent, right? And encapsulated. The reason the Buddha said go to these huts and all this kind of thing, you know, these roots of trees, go out into the forest alone, is if for no other reason that it's so incredibly stimulating to be with other people. So it would make sense, wouldn't it, to sort of say, let's leave that out so we can begin to calm down a little bit and see what the mind is doing, see how the heart vibrates. See what I'm saying? It's like makes, it makes a lot of sense if there's this other context. So I've been teaching an interpersonal meditation practice I developed of insight dialogue. And what I see is, and the people who come to retreats and see, is the extent of the sensitivity, you know what I'm saying? That, that really, uh, one becomes aware of one's active mind, active heart, in that moment of interpersonal contact. So that provides this challenge that maybe seems like too much. But what I've found, and maybe we'll have a chance to practice tonight, is that at the same time we have that challenge, that challenge of you say something, and it's not just my own thoughts that I need to be mindful of and let go of and come into the moment, but it's your thoughts too. Give me a break, you know, that's like too much. I can hardly handle my own, right? But we have this extra special benefit. 
which is if we're sitting, let's just make it easy to imagine two people sitting across from each other with the agreement, let's meditate together. That's part of the moment, part of the deal, right? So effectively, what does that say, these two people together? It says, I'm here waking up. Are you? Yes, I'm here waking up. So no matter what you're actually talking about, it's like, are you there? Are you there? How's your mindfulness now? How's your tranquility? Are you inquiring into the nature of experience right now? You know what I'm saying? So that even if though it's extra difficult, it's extra easy because you're reminded. See what I'm saying? Very, very powerful. So, it's a good beginning to acknowledge that, that yes, it's out of the norm to meditate with another person, to speak and listen and really cultivate as I said, these enlightenment factors. Enlightenment factors. You know, mindfulness, investigation of the moment of experience, energy, joy, even rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Right there, right there. Come to see how things actually are. So that's, that's, where, that's where I'm speaking from, is recognizing that. Because otherwise, what's, what's the option? You meditate, let's say, how many people here have been on retreat? Oh, good. Well, that makes it easy for me to describe this. You go off on retreat, and you're spending days, perhaps, becoming more still, more mindful, watching watching as the habit mind does its wild ride and maybe begins to calm down a little bit and maybe you see some of the grasping that's at the root of suffering, right? That's, this happens. Maybe that tranquility establishes itself sufficiently that you can be, the mind can be present and still enough that insight can dawn because you're ready for it. You're stable enough for it. Right? Then what happens? Well, you go home. And what's the first thing that happens? You walk in the door and someone's there. Or maybe the next thing that happens is if, you're, if you happen to live alone, you go to work the next day or you go to the store. And all of a sudden, the eyes are vibrating and the body starts vibrating and there's this incredible dynamic human encounter that pretty soon whatever it is you've cultivated begins to get a little shredded. Don't you think? Does anybody experience this or is this just me? Okay, so some laughter tells me that it's not just me. So, there's this huge gap where you've cultivated these refined qualities and then you've encountered people and maybe it topples the unstable edifice of a you know a special situation mindfulness special situation tranquility so 
imagine yourself, let's say, let's say all of us go off together somewhere in the woods, that's the roots of trees, you know, and we say, okay, we're going to meditate together for a few days, a week, whatever. And we come in together, we spend plenty of time in silence. In fact, the whole retreat's in silence, except when we're meditating in dialogue. So let's say that that's what we've agreed to do. Right? And we have some support from a teacher who reminds us to pause out of this reactive, grasping moment that inevitably arises when there's this interpersonal contact, right? It does happen. That's part of the human mechanism. And to relax, to accept just what's happening, even if we're really frantic and scared, maybe, to be opposite, sitting with a group of one person, two people, three people. Maybe it's, you know, threatening, frightening. For many people it is. Or maybe it's really exciting because like, oh, I've wanted this intimacy for so long, all this kind of thing, right? But either way, we're, you know, vibrating, right? But we have the support. So we pause and we see the, the vibrating mind. We feel the vibrations of the body, the, the wanting, the, the urges, the fears, the hungers that are manifesting in this body-mind. Can you relate to what I'm saying? Is it making sense so far? Because I'm projecting into something that's not happening now, but I really want to see if, if it makes some sense. You know what I'm saying? So, between some silent time, some time in dialogue where we're constantly reminded, right in the middle of a conversation, we're interrupted, And what's happening right now? What's going on in the mind? What thoughts are arising? What emotions, what sensations are arising here and now? The same mindfulness that we know from our individual silent practice. This very moment, what's happening? And we see it just as it is here and now. This is the pause, the pause of mindfulness. We accept whatever it is because, well, I'm on retreat. I'm here to see it as it is. Calm, begin to calm down a little bit. And as we do this again and again, you know, maybe a few minutes later, 15 minutes later, over time, we actually begin to be more aware, more stable more still, even when we're engaged with others. You see what I'm saying? And at the same time, the conversations we're having are not about what we did last weekend. They're about aging, (coughs) disease and death, about impermanence and suffering and non-self, about judgments that the liking and disliking mind, the mind of preferences. It's about the enlightenment factors themselves happening, arising here and now, or the hindrances, the anger, 
the selfish desires, the doubt. And we also point each other towards that awareness and actually contemplate that. We're talking about things that matter, you know what I'm saying? This is not water cooler banter, you, you understand? It's like all of those norms are just left aside totally. There's no need because we're meditating together. We're here to inquire into the nature of the human experience. So let's say we continue like this and maybe in the middle of the retreat we have a day of complete silence, drop down a little further and continue the practice. What, what might we see? What might we see within our own body minds, our own direct human experience, if the mindfulness and the tranquility, you know, sati and samadhi, mindfulness, concentration, right? The balance that takes you with awareness into the nature of experience, calm down enough to see it, and the mindfulness gets deeper and the concentration stronger, right? Moving together into the moment, what might we see? Well, we might see the very same truths, truths that we see when we're on our own, but they're just manifesting in this way. So we might see the Four Noble Truths, for example. Maybe we see suffering, huh? Do you think you'd see some suffering if you did this? If you saw your hungers and your urges, and, oh my God, I said this thing, and then the bell rang, and I didn't get to finish, and I felt like such a jerk. Then you catch yourself, you say, oh. You know, see the kind of the... The, the, the urge to escape from your own self-hatred in that moment. You know, it's like, ugh, that's ugly. You know? Or maybe you would see that you were talking and trying to impress this person in front of you because mindfulness is strong now. You're in relationship, but mindfulness is strong. What will you see? What do you see, what do you see when you're in traditional, silent, individual, personal meditation and mindfulness and concentration get strong. Anybody? Just, you don't have to be claiming, you know, enlightenment here. Yeah? See some of the content of your mind. Right. And you see how the impulses of the mind keep flowing forward, right? It's like, I didn't do that. I didn't try to think that. So might we see that if we were together in meditation? Right? You see the, the mind trying to construct some self that can handle the world. Try to get safe and try to figure things out and who am I and why am I here? And when you meditate in, in insight dialogue, interpersonal meditation, you say, who am I in relationship to you? Do you see me? Do I see you? And if you see me, do I really love it? Is this like, great, because I'm hungering for being, to exist? 
Or is it really scary to be seen? To be present? And I fear that. I want to escape. That's the vibhavatanha, the hunger to get out. We're talking second noble truth here. The, The origin of suffering is hunger, craving. And we see the hungers, right? Right. So, is there, you know, this is kind of a rhetorical question, forgive me, it's, but is there anyone here who doesn't feel interpersonal hunger? You know, don't you want the pleasure of human encounter? Don't you want to be seen? Don't you also want safety? These are hungers, right? So, this is the second noble truth in, interpers- in our interpersonal lives. The origin of suffering is hunger. So, this would, be, this would be known. And it's not only known, it's known as we cultivate awareness, as we cultivate the knowing that is not that. Right? So there's knowing, but it's not a, like me and my hunger. It's just an opera, like the mind. We were saying the mind. We would see the contents of the thoughts. We would see that the thought happens automatically. We'd see the hungers happen automatically. There's no self in it. It's just happening. So there's this knowing that is not that, isn't there? Check it out right now as you're hearing me talk. Right? So you feel the body sitting. That's just, you know actually enter into this mindful moment now. So the body is sitting. You're listening. I'm talking. But there's just sitting. And you can hear me. And you can understand what I'm saying. And you can still feel the body sitting, right? So here here we are. So this moment is coming a little bit into focus because we're in the body. Really, really good place to find the moment. So the body's sitting. And you notice there's a sense of uh, me listening to him, that kind of thing. You know, there's a sense of being there where you are, being a listener. Just, you know, I'm saying something really almost so obvious that you'd overlook it. But it's like, okay, I'm looking out and there's, there's Gregory sitting there talking. There's me listening. Right? And so you notice your thoughts kind of maybe interested, maybe there's some judgments, maybe there's some boredom, maybe there's some excitement, maybe there's something here that really could trigger something valuable. But whatever it is, there's a mood. So there's a sense of how it feels to be you right now. You know what I'm saying? So this is, in in Pali, that's citta, citta anupasana, the mind states. Sense of this uh, kind of emotional state, the Where's the heart? That can be known right now. Even as you're listening. Especially if I pause. Right? So there you are sitting. Here I am sitting. There's a sense of being here. The sensation of touching the chair. There's the thoughts that are arising in the mind, your mind, right? 
There's this sense of mood, however you feel right now, anxious, relaxed, curious. And this can all be known even as we speak. If you were speaking to me, I would listen and I would be present with you, right? And something between us, not looking at magic, just looking at being awake. This being awake begins to be possible here and now, even in this relational moment. Well, if we were really engaged with each other, maybe we would begin to discover what's underneath, you know, well, these, these entanglements that we so often get into. Think of, think of what's sticky in your own life, you know? I mean, there's certain kinds of suffering that, are, that really hurt, that are relatively simple, like a broken arm or even cancer. You know what I'm saying? It's like you do the best you can to deal with a disease or an injury, and you may not know the right decision, but you do what you can. But what about a difficult relationship? What about divorce, or what about a boss that just is a creep? Or what about a neighbor that is inconsiderate, and every time you come home, you kind of get this feeling in your gut, ugh. You know what I'm saying? That's very sticky. It's not like a broken arm. Broken arm hurts. But the human stuff is like really complicated. Here's a way to think about it. A little quiz. What they say, whoever they are, is the most complicated thing in the entire universe. The most complicated entity. Physical object. The brain, the human brain. So, you got this incredibly you know, complicated brain. And now here's another one comes along. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What are you going to get? What are you going to get? Well, it should be pretty simple, I think. Or not. I think not. You know what I'm saying? And all of our senses are the same way. All of our senses are the same way, connecting into this, these deep constructions that we've formed throughout this life, maybe beyond, before that, it's up to you, but certainly in this life. You know, at the age of, what, three months, and, you know, around there, several months on either side, we're forming 1.7 synapses, million synapses per hour, 1.7 million. And what are we doing? We're figuring out who's mom, who's dad, who's safe, who's not. Where's the world? What's my body? Who are you? So right in with this sense of self is the self in relationship. I mean, it's in the brain. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's how we survived on the savanna against tigers and lions and all these superior creatures. We had the brain, and we could cooperate with our brothers and sisters. That's how we survived. Right? So, 
We are pack animals. We are social creatures genetically, evolutionarily, and really complex. And so we come back all the way back now to my challenges with my boss or my girlfriend or my husband or my wife or my kids or my parents. Would you consider your relationship with your parents simple? (laughs) Thank you very much. You know what I'm saying? Why? Well, just look at what's involved. But those same complexities spring to life from Sankara, from the constructions in this heart-mind, in every moment of human contact. Okay, so there's sensation. You know, I see. There's light reflecting off of this human being. And the light comes into my eyes and it's just light, isn't it? And if this person speaks, it's just sound waves touching the ear. But what happens? It's perceived as a human being. In this case, it's a female. And it's the act of perception recognizes what is this and that perception indexes into my entire history. You see what I'm saying? And in that moment of contact that is just still sensory is now proliferated into what we call relationship. And the more you get to know someone, the more points of contact there are. So could this be known? Could more of this be known profitably by the meditating mind? Could we possibly disentangle, as the Buddha said, the tangle? Could the hunger, the second noble truth, the craving, what's the third noble truth? The cessation of hunger is the cessation of suffering. So is it possible for there to be letting go, for there to be relinquishment, for there to be non-grasping in this moment, in any moment? Deep in the heart, could something let go? And would it make a difference? See what I'm saying? Do you want to practice? Okay, I, I got a couple of people said yes, and a lot of people stood there like slightly comatose. <laughs> I should say that not everybody would have to. Someone, people could also sit and watch and listen and hold the silent space. But if 90% of you don't want to, then I, I could easily you know, continue to talk and share in some way that's useful. But I certainly would think that if you have some experience even 10 minutes that it would be um, profitable. Wow. It's a little bit, little bit uh, reticent here. Maybe that's because we're in a big city and I don't know what it is. But I don't want to push. I don't want to push. Okay, so let's let it be. My, my apologies to those who do want to practice. So let's, let's seize the moment. Now, I don't, I don't want to presume to know why people don't want to practice 
or don't want to say they want to practice anyway. But it's an excellent opportunity to talk about the valence, the charge associated with this particular type of contact. If we had said, do you want to go out and look at the stars? You know, just looking at the stars is much more neutral, isn't it? What's the difference? What's the difference? Why do we withdraw? So, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the second noble truth, the truth of hunger. Okay? We usually think of hunger or craving. Tanha is the Pali word. We usually think of this as craving for sensual pleasures, right? Craving is like, you know, give, give me the, uh, the really good food and give me the, uh, you know, cashmere blanket and give me the, you know, this kind of thing. And if I can't have it, I'm not going to be happy. And that's craving and that's suffering. Would that it were so simple. It's not. It's not. What about... Well, okay, so the Buddha spoke about these three kinds of craving. I touched on them, but let's go a little deeper because we have this opportunity that just presented itself. Let's just take advantage of it. Kamatanha, the hunger for pleasure. Well, sensory pleasure, clearly, is something we hunger for. We are brothers and sisters with yeast and brothers and sisters with cats and dogs and brothers and sisters with uh, you know, all creatures that have some urge to turn towards what will um, uh, be a nutriment, be effectively pleasurable. It's a higher level than yeast to get pleasurable, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, so what we, what, we, what we seek is like, I want a really good cappuccino, not a bad one. Is that, is that kind of San Francisco? Is that all right? <laughs> okay, so, but we also, do we not fear pain? And that that's part of this hunger for pleasure. We want the pleasure, we don't want the pain. As my teacher, Ajahn Sobin, uh, always said, the ending of the pleasurable is painful. The ending of the painful is pleasurable. Right? Someone gets off your toe. That's good. I like that. Right? Okay, so, so let's look then at the interpersonal, just so we can understand kind of what's happening with us here and now. Interpersonal pleasure. The hunger for interpersonal pleasure. Again, I ask you, do you seek interpersonal pleasure? Do you seek pleasure in relationship? If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or anything like that, the answer is yes. If you enjoy some people and don't enjoy others, the answer is yes. So think if you fit in any of those kinds of categories and, and you'll see that the answer is yes. Hunger for pleasure. So do you think when the Buddha talked about kamatanha, the hunger for pleasure, he said, but I don't mean that pleasure? No, he's talking elementally. Right? So clearly, and plus you can see in the suttas when he describes this stuff, he includes those pleasures. So we have to also see that there's a desire for non-pain, a hunger for non-pain. 
And in fact, one thing we do is we, we medicate, as we all know, with pleasures to not feel pain, don't we? So what is interpersonal pain? What's like the core interpersonal pain? Rejection, loneliness, right? And in fact, in tribal society or as an infant, to be rejected is to die, literally die, right? So, the interpersonal hunger for pleasure includes the uh, fear of loneliness of not having that pleasure, not having that safety, not having that evolutionary genetic uh, need, if you will, urge met. And then the next, he talked about three of these hungers, so that's the hunger for pleasure. He talked about bhavatanha, the hunger for being, the hunger to exist. So this is the hunger, let's start with, you know, as we did before, just the personal hunger to exist, to survive. Ego survival, survival of the body. Have you ever been with anyone dying? Or go through the dying process? You know, they can be as miserable as the day is long and want to die and they want to live. They're holding on to life. The organism holds on to life. What is the interpersonal hunger to be, to exist? What does it mean to exist in relationship? To be seen, right? To, to be acknowledged, like to exist. So we hunger to be seen. Look at me, you know? And so it could be very obvious, like celebrity, you know, something like this. Give, give me all of that looking all of the ways it drives accomplishment, you know, the, 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 whether it's the, 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 the proud, let's say, artist or, or just the little girl dancing across the kitchen floor, mommy, mommy, look at me, look at me. Or perhaps it's the, uh, you know, the person with uh, uh, the fashionista, you know, look at me. You know, we, we do the hair, look at me. We drive, the, we, we drive the fast car, maybe the bright red convertible fast car. Look at me. Here I am. And all of our clever little jokes. Meditation teacher sits on a stage. Look at me. You know? Husband and wife. Look at me. You, know, you can go anywhere you want. You can go into your most normal social situation and say... And just look around. And you'll see all of this. I'll look at you. You look at me. We'll both exist. It'll be fine. You know what I'm saying? I was, I was sitting in a sauna one day. And I was sitting there. There's another guy sitting there. Some other guy walks in. And, uh, you know, they start talking about, like, I think the Blazers. It's a Portland basketball team. And, like, I'm... I'm totally like attuned to hungers and all this kind of thing. I'm saying, hey, you exist. You know, hey, how about those blazers? You exist. Yeah, yeah, I exist. Um, yeah, they're really doing well. Oh, I acknowledge your kind offer of 
acknowledging my existence. You exist too. <laughs> you know? And so they're like both feeling, hey, we, we, this feels pretty good. What else have they accomplished, right? I mean, they didn't end famine. They talked about the Blazers, for God's sakes, who exist primarily because of the hunger for interpersonal pleasure, don't they? Right? So if we get rid of this, if we get rid of this hunger, you can sell your stock in the fashion industry. You can sell your stock in the uh, entire uh, communications industry. You know, what about Facebook and the hunger for pleasure and the hunger for being seen? Hey, come to my site. How many hits have I gotten today? Hunger to exist. And we extend our existence through these network communications, don't we? So that's the hunger for being and the fear of non-being, the fear of invisibility, right? That's the reciprocal, the other side of that. You say something, you accomplish something, and no one sees it. You, you, you walk through the world and no one sees it. You're marginal in society. Maybe you're the wrong color or the wrong sexual orientation and you're unseen. In a very fundamental way, something is being unmet, right? And we come to the third and last hunger, vibhava tanha, the negative prefix, bhava, being, becoming, existing, the hunger for non-being. Right. So traditionally, personally, you know, you can look at that as like a suicide wish, this kind of thing. The hunger to not exist, like to get out of this incredibly painful samsara. That's the classical definition. The hunger to escape, to get out, to be safe. So what is the interpersonal hunger to escape, to get out, to be safe? Let's look at the other side. It's much easier to see. the fear of being, the fear of being seen. Vibhavatanha, the fear of existing interpersonally, right? the fear of being exposed, the fear of intimacy, the fear that whatever's like in your substructure that you think is not okay will be revealed. And this is all of us, by the way. Some of us might have a, 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 an obvious inclination to the narcissism and the grandiosity of look at me. And some people may be more obviously uh, introverted or socially anxious and don't look at me, right? But we all share in this hunger for existence and for safety to get out. And the connection, now we see instantly the connection. If we look closely, we say, okay, there's the hunger for escape. How do we escape, guys? Think of the different escapes. Right? Addictions. Alcohol, drugs, television, work, shopping, whatever. Get me out. So this hunger for uh, 
uh, non-being reveals the connection between addiction and unworthiness, that which wants to hide, and the fundamental discomfort in the world. So, in not wanting, for example, to enter into insight dialogue here and now in this room, there's some element of vibhavatanha. I don't want to be seen. I come to meditation as an internal, individual process, a place of safety. So, in some sense, meditation is a way to get out if we're not careful and have it, and, and really with mindfulness meditation becomes a way to be fully awake and to meet whatever is present, whether it's another person, whether it's my own confusion, whether it's sensory experience. I meet life with mindfulness. I cultivate tranquility, stability of mind, and inquiry and energy and all these great qualities to know the nature of experience. But would any of us not admit that it's also pretty nice to just close the eyes, go internal, and just say, enough, enough. Give me this. You know what I'm saying? So it's like getting out. Completely reasonable. Life is nuts. We live in an absolutely insane society. We all know that. It's nothing knew about that. But the question is, can we bring this sanity of mindfulness, tranquility, and so on into our relational lives and thereby maybe make the whole situation workable? Maybe those hungers... Let's talk about freedom for a minute, huh? Maybe those hungers can diminish Maybe those urges that push us, they're like a you know, like water pressure in a fire hose, kind of think of how the personality forms itself around hunger, you know? There's the jokester, you know, and that's his 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 or her personality. Look at me, or the the the, the person who let's say is very um uh, out there with his or her body and look at me. And the whole personality forms around the bhavatanha, the hunger for being. Or we have whole ways of living to make sure that we can stay escaped and safe. And we have a personality. We, maybe we have a persona out there, but everything is really well protected, right? And so that's the vibhavatanha forming the personality. And we contrive our lives around pleasure. So these are strong forces. And they have us constantly off balance. This is dukkha, is to be constantly wanting and never satisfied and suffering and give me more until we realize it can never be filled. The whole cannot be filled. Cannot be filled. That's the brilliance of the third noble truth. The cessation of hunger is the cessation of suffering. So it's about the mitigation, the releasing, the relinquishment. 
towards the diminishment, the vanquishing even, of hunger. So what would it be to be together without, you know, trying to drink each other up, without fearing what would be seen, without even seeking pleasure, but just being in awareness, in stability, and in the openness of heart. Because the fundamental presence of compassion is there. This is not a nothingness that happens when hunger diminishes. The generosity that we see all around us, the kindness of people, the compassion of the heart that vibrates when it experiences the pain of another, that's still present. That's not hunger. So as the hunger diminishes, that's what, that's what remains. Wouldn't that be different? Wouldn't that be a different life for you or me as individuals? Wouldn't that be a different culture, a different set of values, a different quality of life? So, the fourth noble truth is the path. And so, I began talking about the path, and I'll just close by saying, the path can, with great profit, great benefit, wholesome results include interpersonal meditation, the cultivation of mindfulness in interpersonal contexts on or off retreat, and that it is possible to do and has wonderful benefits. I teach these retreats all over the world and we have groups forming in different communities and what I get is back is quite stunning in terms of how lives change. The same way if you think back to your first retreat or when meditation, even if you haven't done retreat, when meditation came into your life and you saw another way of being, another approach to being human, to having a skillful, wholesome human life, that's all it is, right? That's the kind of shift that happens when it extends into the whole of our lives. So... I think I'll stop talking and see if there's anything you want to talk about yourselves or questions or thoughts. Yes. Can I speak about how to bring about equanimity in, in our interpersonal lives? Mm-hmm. 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 Because usually when we deal with relationships, there's some something not balanced, either internally, yeah, uh, with say one individual or between Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And yet Buddhism always talks about equanimity.
in talking about equanimity, to some extent, you're going right to the top of the mountain. You know, that's, that's really an exquisite challenge. And yes, I'd be happy to say something about it. Um, you know, if you would ask me about mindfulness, right off the tongue, tranquility, inquiry, equanimity is really an exquisite challenge and opportunity. Well, let's say pointing in that direction. Yeah. No, no. Why? Let's not back off. No problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's very good. Thank you very much. What I'd like to hearken back to for starters is these hungers, this craving that drives most of our moments. Even when we seem more or less at peace, the, the, the heart is kind of gobbling up each moment. You know, give, give me, It's like we might be just sitting in our living room reading the paper and having a cup of coffee on Sunday morning. And it's, give me the next words on the page. Give me the next sip of coffee. You know, I mean, that's a pretty peaceful scene, isn't it? <laughs> now let's go out to, let's, let's, instead of coffee at home, let's go out to eat. And, and, and you know, it's like, hmm, what should, what should I have? And so there's the sensory, right? We'll come to equanimity, trust me. Right? And in the same way, there's these subtle hungers that are constantly operating. So let's say we have a, a husband and wife and they're trying to negotiate, you know, um, their relationship and one feels dishonored like you know well I'm also an artist and I have to hold my job too and you don't respect me or you know or you only see me as a you know a provider or you know just so you don't see all of who I am that's really the point I'm trying to make all of these things that are so simple so common in our lives these relational moments of dis-ease that it's so easy to overlook that underneath is some kind of longing. There's these longings. They keep us constantly, as I said, off balance. So why would we not be experiencing equanimity at any moment? Because we want it to be different. Right? Somehow we want it to be different. Now, the recognition of that fact, the sheer, just this, like if you all went home just with the one lesson <coughs> of contemplating tanha, contemplating craving in your interpersonal lives, and you had the skill to meet it with love rather than damnation, you know, to meet your own craving with, oh, there it is, oh, I feel it in my solar plexus, you know, I feel it in my belly. Just receiving it with mindfulness, being present with that sense of longing and urge that shadows us, but now we're conscious of it, right? And receiving and accepting not pushing away, not denying, right? And something, when it's met with that quality of awareness that is love, 
unbinds. It unbinds. That's how meditation works. That's how lo- that's the efficacy of love. Right? If you only went home with that and you really stayed with it and really uh, integrated that kind of awareness into everyday life, something like equanimity would be able to dawn because that which keeps us off balance is diminishing, you know, like the rock under the table leg is getting smaller, something like that. And um, actually, there's probably a lot more I could say because it's such a huge question. You know, equanimity is really the question of freedom, isn't it? So I think I'll have to stop there. Just otherwise, I'll we will totally run out of time. But nice question. Thank you. Yeah. Much of what you've said tonight seems the examples that you use over and over seem to be pointing towards primary relationships. Can you talk about this practice for people who are not in primary relationships? Mm-hmm. And you know, going to the grocery store. Absolutely. You know, among friends. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to talk about this in relationship, not just primary relationships, but all kinds of relationships. Let me tell you one of the things that I saw while I was... I should tell you just this kind of an interesting thing. When I realized, I was teaching these retreats and I didn't understand a lot of the stuff I've been talking about tonight. I was just sort of saying, okay, mindfulness, dialogue, isn't that amazing? It was amazing. And I didn't have no idea why. So I was just teaching this practice and, uh, you know, it's like, and then I began to see everybody was suffering. And I said, oh, dukkha, suffering. And instantly I understood suffering, cause of suffering, cessation of suffering, path. It was like, just like, it was like an epiphany, you know. So I was walking around, like, noticing everything was like, wow, look at this. It's like the human experience writ large everywhere I looked. I'd be walking down the street and, you know, some people would look at me and look away and, oh, Vibhava Tanha, you know. <laughs> you know? And, and, but then when people would look at me, and I especially noticed this with young girls, it's like they, their, their way of being, the place they had to be was to please others and to smile. That was their social imprint that had to do with this how to be, the, the bhava, how to become, Right? They weren't looking for pleasure. It was just filling that role. Right? So, I, you know, everywhere I went, I was with, uh, you know, in checkout lines, and I was uh, in um, uh, simple, you know, um, mercantile transactions and everything. And you show up. All you have to do is show up, and you see the human experience right in front of you totally. You know what I'm saying? So, so the, the uh, urges, the wantings, and the fears are all right there operating, right? So, and it's not just them, right? It's me too. So I, I, I could tell you what, you know, what my experience was just with myself. This isn't just like, look at them. Not by any means. In fact, the real hit was... What am I doing? You know, what's, where's the tanha? Where's non-freedom? Here. What's this life like? You know, and I saw where I was longing to be. Longing to, you know, 
please, please look at me. I exist. I want you to see me. And I try to do things really well so you'll appreciate, or I'll try to say something funny so you'll appreciate, you know. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, we all have our different gifts and, you know, so if it's in an area where you're not gifted, you know, it's like my wanting to be seen for my hair would be a joke, you know. But uh, maybe I could be seen for some, something else I do, you know. And then I looked at, you know, also where am I hungering to just find a place of uh, safety away and so I could turn it inward. But it's actually, you know, really brings up, in me anyway, tremendous compassion to see this, you know. So you talk about any kind of relationship, you know, go into a, a, a you know, a, a printing shop or something and go make some copies and see how you are with the guy who, or the, the, the person who, who helps you out, you know. Are they, are they present and reaching out? Are they withdrawing? Are they just stable and showing up? Maybe you'll find some equanimity, you know? Um, it's really beautiful, actually. The heart is really, the heart can know a lot. I don't know if that answered your question. In part. In part, okay. It's up to you whether you want to go further. Um, the question was more about the how of it. Oh, the how. Oh. How do you do it? Oh, you've got to practice, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can practice in formal practice, and I recommend that highly. And you can practice in groups, and you can just take what we've been talking about and go use it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.